Drug companies and researchers in the U.S. are racing to get a coronavirus vaccine out as fast as possible. And that effort hinges on researchers finding tens of thousands of people to join vaccine trials. And it really matters who they recruit, because many researchers want vaccine trials to reflect who's getting sick. In the case of coronavirus, it's Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous communities who've been disproportionately affected. But those same communities of color may also be the least interested in participating in trials. And that could affect who decides to take the vaccine when it finally comes out. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Thursday, August 27th. Coming up on the show, one doctor on what it takes to run a diverse COVID vaccine trial. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Dr. Branch, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Angela Branch is an infectious disease doctor at the University of Rochester Medical Center. She also helps run a partnership with the National Institutes of Health. We are part of a network that's an NIH network called the Vaccine Treatment and Evaluation Unit. And so we were all in a room in January at one of our first meetings for the year, and Tony Fauci comes into the room and he's like, have you heard about this coronavirus coming out of China? And, you know, everybody chuckled a little bit. I mean, of course we had. We've been reading the news and trying to see if there's any data, but this was January 20th. And so he said, you know, get ready. This is coming. And you guys are going to sort of be part of the backbone of the efforts that turned out to be true. And so we've sort of been at the table since conception, helping to design the trials and move things forward. What did you think or feel when Anthony Fauci came to that January 20th meeting? You know, <laughs> he wasn't a household name <laughs> before COVID-19. Like, we all knew him. But he was like an infectious disease hero, so... I mean, he's always been our infectious disease hero, but he wasn't necessarily a celebrity at the time. So this was just kind of our leader coming in and telling us what our first priorities were going to be for the year. And he had more information than we did about the scope of the pandemic potential of the virus. At the time, you know, we just had our first case in on U.S. soil that same day. So we didn't actually know what this was going to mean for our country or for the world at the point. But, you know, when the leader of your field comes in and tells you this is what's happening, you realize that you just have to pivot and get on board. And this is what we train for. And let's go. Fast forward eight months. And several vaccine candidates have reached phase three trials, likely the last stage before FDA approval. Phase three is when researchers find out whether the vaccine is effective. And these studies require tens of thousands of participants. Angela is recruiting some of those participants now to test a Pfizer vaccine and next week an AstraZeneca vaccine. 
there's a lot of pressure to work quickly. How challenging is that right now? It's not hard to recruit people to large studies, at least not here in Rochester, where we have just this longstanding history of doing this kind of work. I mean, polio vaccines, you know, we worked on those, you know, we worked on meningitis vaccines, pneumonia vaccines. So there's just this understanding in Rochester that people want to be part of that sort of thing. Where we have problems is not having a population that's 95 to 99 percent white and people who live in the suburbs. White people who live in the suburbs. That's some of Rochester's population, but not all. About 17 percent of Rochester area residents are Black. And Angela says when it comes to phase three trials, it's critical to think of diversity. I think it should always be a goal that when you're doing studies like these, that the group you're trying to prevent disease in is represented in the trial that you're conducting. You know, there's not a lot of biological reason why we would think a vaccine won't work the same way in white people as it will with black and brown people. But you want to have confidence in that. And the only way to have confidence in that is to make sure that you have tested the vaccine in a diverse group of people, especially when you're talking about something like COVID, where you know that minorities are being disproportionately affected by this in terms of the rates of infection and also the rates of deaths. And the other thing is we're trying to create a vaccine that people will take. And once we have this vaccine, even if we are able to show that it works, if people don't trust it, if people won't take it, then, you know, we've lost that battle. And so one of the ways to build trust is to be able to demonstrate to people, you know, look, we tested this vaccine and people that look like you. And so we know it's safe. And so you can feel confident that it won't make you sick and that it, in fact, will keep you safe. So you're specifically trying to reach out and recruit Black people in Rochester to participate in the trial. What has your experience been like? It was an interesting, <laughs> it's been interesting, um, so I'm a Black woman and, you know, I have a very large Black family and I'm a physician and my brother's a physician and my sister-in-law's a physician. So in our family, there's a lot of respect for medicine and for healthcare. And so if I call up 100 members of my family and tell them, go get this vaccine, you know, they're going to go get it. If they're sick, they call me and, you know, I tell them what I think. And also I work in research and I work in healthcare. So I think I'm very insulated in the sense that I haven't fully appreciated some of the historical distrust that black and brown communities have for research and even for healthcare in general. But Angela started seeing that distrust firsthand back in April when she offered one of her patients what was then a new treatment for COVID, remdesivir. I went into this man's room and he was a black man and he was in his 40s and he had diabetes and I could tell he was going to get really sick. Like he hadn't gotten really sick yet, but I could tell that that was coming. And I start telling him about remdesivir and about the study. And, I, you know, it's one black person talking to another. So <laughs> he stops. And he's like, hold it right there. What are the stats? And so I start telling him what we found and why we think that it works and so forth. And he's like, I don't want to know anymore. The patient refused the treatment. You know, the next day he got really sick. And I was so taken aback by that because a couple of weeks earlier, my uncle had actually died from COVID. It was like so mind-blowing to me that I'm talking to somebody, I'm telling him, I have treatment for you that's going to help you recover. And you're 
the highest risk person for COVID and you have young kids at home and you're the sole caregiver and you're going to tell me no? (laughs) I just, I couldn't believe it. Like, I couldn't believe it. But that was my first realization that people just don't trust medicine. And minorities communities just don't trust medicine. They're just not confident that we have their best interests at heart. And it doesn't matter who the messenger is, that distrust is going to be there. So the conversation you had with this man who refused treatment, how did that change your approach and inform how you recruit for your trials? Well, I think it really kind of took me out of the bubble and helped me to have a frame of reference for understanding what a heavy lift it was going to be to go out there and convince people to participate in a vaccine study where they're not necessarily going to derive any benefit and they're not even sick. And so people are always more weary of vaccine studies than if you were to go to them while they're sick in the hospital and say, I have something that might help you. And so it just made me realize that this is going to be a crazy heavy lift. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. Angela's experience treating a black man who was in the hospital for COVID, who didn't want to be treated with an experimental drug, made her reflect on the reasons behind that reaction. I think there's a lot of historical mistrust. Every black family in America has heard of the Tuskegee experiments, and those stories get passed down from generation to the generation as a cautionary tale. The Tuskegee study began back in the 1930s and involved a group of Black men infected with syphilis. Doctors denied the men medical treatment to study the long-term effects of the disease. And some of those long-term effects are very severe. You can develop dementia, all sorts of neurological problems. You can lose your vision. It can affect all of your organs. So people were allowed to die and to get severely debilitated so that the people conducting the studies could understand what the long-term effects of syphilis were. And at the time, there was treatment that was available. And so I think there's this sense that I'm not going to be a guinea pig and you're specifically targeting me because our community has been guinea pigs in the past and it's had really horrible outcomes. With COVID specifically, I've heard people say, well, you know, we felt that maybe there was bias in our access to testing for COVID-19 and that minority communities weren't having ready access to testing. And so, you know, there's that sort of thing. And I think access to healthcare in general is not just in the United States. And I think that certainly 
contributes to, to distrust of medical research as well. So to counter that distrust, Angela and her team met with a group of around 15 to 20 people. Some were leaders of the Black community in Rochester. She asked the group what her team could do to address the concerns of potential Black participants in the trial. And that was a very challenging conversation because they were just brutally honest. So some of the things that came up were they needed to see more investigators of color. They made it that really clear that if you're going to come into our communities and talk to us about research or about treatment, about anything, you need to have more people on your team that look and sound like us. And did being a Black doctor change the dynamic in that conversation with the community members? Well, you know, I was there and then I had another colleague who was white and they were definitely harder on her than they were on me. I mean, they're hard on me too, but at the end of the conversation, they said, well, you're the one who should be talking to us about this, which, you know, I can't be the only person talking about this. I'm not even the most senior member on the team. So (laughs) how that's actually going to work, I don't know. But we heard the message. It's better if the people who are talking to them are like them because they're more likely to trust that source. After that first focus group, Angela and her team expanded their outreach. They teamed up with community groups in Rochester's Black neighborhoods, put ads on radio stations, and they plan to meet with Black fraternities and sororities in the area. And so what is your pitch to Black community members about why they should be in the trial? I think that we're not going to motivate people with the financial compensation. It's not that much. And it's specifically not that much because we don't want it to be coercive. And so I think there always has to be this altruistic motivation that you want to contribute to science, that you want to contribute to helping your community, that you want to contribute to helping your family, and that you understand that somebody has to be first. Otherwise, other Black and brown people will die, as they are from COVID at alarming rates. And so we're trying to make it to help people understand that, you know, we're not doing this because we have research goals. We're doing this because we want to make sure your community is safe and protected. And so, you know, you have an opportunity to contribute to that. Can you tell us about any memorable conversations you've had with Black or brown people you've been trying to recruit for these trials? Yeah, I spoke to a woman who <laughs> let me go through my whole spiel, answer all her questions. And at the end of the conversation, she was super nice. She's like, well, thank you so much for that. I'm like, OK, would you like me to sign you up? No, thank you. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I want to ask her why. I want to find out why, because she was so pleasant about the whole thing. And she had all these questions. I'm like, what was it that made you say no but I couldn't, you know, because you, you don't want to press people if they say and that was a no. Right. So I've had conversations like that. And then I spoke to another woman and she was like and she's a nurse. And she said she's always been weary of vaccines because she thinks that it goes against her faith, that we're giving her something foreign that's going to protect her. But when I explained to her that all a vaccine does is train your body's defense system, which if you're a person of faith, God created to defend itself if it sees the virus, that was something that she could understand and she can wrap her mind around that we're not giving you something that's going to protect you. We're giving you something that's actually training a natural part of your body to be ready so that it can defend you when it sees the virus. And that was an argument that was persuasive for her. So, you know, I learned a lot from that, just thinking about 
what people need to know, what people need to understand, where the misinformation is, and that, you know, you really have to speak to people in a language that they understand. If it's an issue surrounding faith, then faith has to be part of the conversation. So it's a very individualized approach, and we're, we're recruiting people one by one, <laughs> which is a lot more time-consuming to do, but that's just the way this has to happen. Angela's goal is to have her trial representative of the Rochester area, which would mean around 25% of the participants should be people of color. As of now, she's at about 17%. But as her trials proceed and the possibility of a vaccine becomes more within reach, Angela's already starting to think a few steps ahead about what happens when her phase three trials are completed and that FDA approval comes through. Do you have a sense of when a vaccine might be available to the general population? I would think early next year. This is just my opinion, because as I said, like knowing that a vaccine works and having it be ready for distribution are two different things. And so making it ready for distribution and working out sort of the kinks of justice. Let's say we don't have 300 million doses right away. Let's say we only have 100 million doses or we can only get 100 million doses out to the communities right away. Who gets those first, you know? And so those are the kinds of things that I think it'll take a little bit to work out. And so I think it'll be widely distributed by next spring. And you're thinking about justice when it comes not just to the testing of the vaccine, but also to its availability. Yeah, I think justice in healthcare, as in any institution, it's something that we have to do better. And so this pandemic vaccine effort will be a real test of that. Dr. Branch, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. That's all for today, Thursday, August 27th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting in this episode by Jared Hopkins. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.